Hello everyone, welcome back to the Eccentric CEO podcast. I'm your host Aman and in today's episode, we're going to talk about the fiduciary industry. So we'll pull back the curtain on financial planners and the people who give financial advice for a living. And we will talk not only about how the top fiduciaries operate, but also expose some of the shady things that happen in this industry. My guest today is Chad Willardson, who is the founder and president of Pacific Capital, where he works with a lot of high net worth people. And he's also the city treasurer for the city of Corona in California, where he manages how much money again, Chad? Just under 400 million for the city taxpayers, yeah. Holy shit, $400 million. How did that happen, by the way? Like, how did you find yourself in that position? Well, it's an elected position. So I, I actually won an election first in 2016, and then I won again in 2020. But I just saw that there was a need. I was kind of recruited by some people saying, we would love to have your professional expertise benefiting our community. And essentially, this position is simply to manage the investment portfolio for the city mm. as a volunteer. It's not like a full-time job, it's a volunteer situation, but I saw a need and an opportunity to serve my community. And it was something that I felt I could make a big difference for a lot of people. And actually when I started, it was 230 million in 2016. And now we're approaching, I think 385 million. So we've done a great job. I've done it. Wow. I'm proud of the work that's been put in for the city. The city's happy to have me. In 2020, nobody ran against me. So I feel like that was a, (laughs) 2016, it was a very crowded field of candidates on the ballot and 2020, no one ran. So I think that speaks volumes and I'm grateful for the support here. That's interesting. And so you're a volunteer in a sense for this role and you were elected, right? Yes. And you're a certified fiduciary and everything. Yes. Is that typically the similar profile of people who do this for cities in America? Not at all. Wow. That was the problem. That was why I was recruited. I asked and I said, what are the qualifications required for this position? And they said, you need to be over 18 years old. You need to be a resident of the city and you need to be a registered voter. And that's it. So there are no financial qualifications required. Now, what that means, it doesn't mean they're making horrible, dangerous, investment, (laughs) risky decisions. It just means they're not doing much or they're outsourcing Mm. it in a very expensive way, Mm -hmm. or the money is almost just kind of like in a savings account, just not earning much. And so we have many restrictions. I can't invest it like I do as a Pacific Capital client would invest Mm -hmm. it. I can't invest in stocks and real estate or private equity investments, but you know, we can still be very strategic and proactive and, and earn a lot of money and growth within the parameters that are set up by our state of California. Interesting. Let's dive a little deeper on that because I'm very curious. When you're managing, let's say, a high net worth individual, right? Right. When you're managing their money versus 
which I would assume is more of a free-for-all, right? Versus when you're managing in a very constrained environment, like for the city, guide us about what what are the high-level differences, the strategic differences, what are the metrics that you are measured by or or not measured on, and what are the main differences? For an individual, family, executive, CEO, entrepreneur Mm -hmm. who hires specific capital, our investment strategy is completely based on their personal goals. Yeah. And so they may be 60 years old or 50 years old and invest very differently than their neighbor who's the same age because mm-hmm. their financial circumstances are different. So we have a free for all on the strategy. We can we can do anything we want for them, but we're going to manage it towards their goals and towards what they're looking to accomplish, when they want to take money out, when they want to essentially exit their career, how long are they investing and saving for, liquidity needs and all that. For the city, it's a different approach. We are looking at benchmarks on essentially the portfolio guidelines that we have in the state of California, which make the account pretty conservative compared to a typical family investing. So we're looking at sensitivity to interest rates. We're looking at when do the tax revenues come into the city account and when do the big bills need to be paid during the year? We're mm-hmm. looking at managing the similarities are we're looking at managing the cash flow very efficiently. Mm-hmm. We're getting money in and we're trying to get it productively invested as quickly as possible. Big difference, we don't have to do tax sensitive planning within the portfolio because it's a municipality. It's a city account, so they don't pay personal taxes like a family client does at Pacific Capital. Pacific Capital clients, we're very tax sensitive. We want to be smart about when we're buying and selling and how long we're holding investments. City account, that doesn't matter as much. City account, we're managing the investments towards benchmarks and towards liquidity needs of the city. We're not, you know, it's obviously not some family with retirement goals or kids to pay for, things like that. So there are some differences, but my role in both cases is really to act as a steward a professional fiduciary and mm. someone who's putting the best interest of the end beneficiaries first. That's the most important part. Mm. And so the main constraints were, from a strategic standpoint, the main constraints are the factors that you have to take into, like the timing when the taxes get paid and you know when the big bills get paid out, which is fairly similar to, you know, people having big purchases planned and people's like their kids college and whatnot on a more longer time horizon here i guess it's more of an annual basis and you said that you can't invest in private equity you can't invest in real estate and stocks as well stocks as well so what do you what do you do how do you work within those constraints yeah the city and the city portfolio is all bond market investments it's all fixed income and so we're buying corporate bonds we're buying um, government bonds we're looking at Every opportunity we can in fixed income, we're looking at how far out on the maturity level can we go. We typically like to stay short term under five years. So we're looking at the timing, the credit quality, interest yields, the cash flow that's expected to come into the city. And we're making decisions on a very, a much more short term time horizon. Interesting. Yeah. So short term, but very conservative in terms of the return that you get. Yes, but interestingly enough, because we've made good strategic timing decisions for what we buy and when, we've had a few years where we had in bond investments, we had over 5% total return, 
multiple years, even though interest rates are at all time lows. Yeah. And if you go to a bank and you're, you're earning basically 0%. So we were very, very pleased with the value appreciation on top of the interest that we earned in the last few years. Mm, I see. So I'm going to touch on the topic of financial infrastructure in a way, right? Because not only the, I mean, of course, where you put money is pretty open to everybody. Anybody can put money in bonds and equities and whatnot. But how they deploy the money, how those transactions are processed is very different when you're spending, let's say, $20 million on an investment versus when you're spending $20,000 on an investment, right? The tools available to you to carry out those transactions and the fees involved and the infrastructure is completely, my gut says it's completely different, right? So what are those big differences? As far as just what's available in the infrastructure of the portfolio? Yeah, and the you know the way you carry out those transactions and how much fees you pay on different things. Yeah, so well, the city transaction costs are extremely low. Mm-hmm. We're working with a professional bond trader in San Diego to actually execute the trades. Mm-hmm. For my clients at Pacific Capital, there are no commissions or trading fees because we are a fiduciary. And so the, the private clients pay a flat rate cost per year. And it's no different than, than you would pay for financial planning services or for investment management. It's going to be a very flat and transparent cost. And it depends, the rate depends on how much we're managing for somebody. So mm-hmm. someone who's, who deposits $50 million personally is going to have a lower annual rate than someone who deposits $5 million as a new client. So that's different. Mm-hmm. But as far as the transaction costs, I mean, that's the same. There's no, we're not in an arrangement where they're paying trading fees or transaction costs at all. Interesting. What I've heard is that when you're the average guy or the, the little guy, whatever they call it in the financial circles, is that if you're an average person that's you know managing their finances and they want to carry out investments you know, through whether it's an online brokerage platform like Robinhood or whatever system you use to actually make those investments, the transaction fees that and other little things that are stacked against you are very different from when a multi-millionaire wants to carry out similar trades, right? It could be. Yeah, I, I'm not super familiar with the do-it-yourself world of investing just because I've been a professional my entire career helping people. So I don't really explore the what it costs to do it mm-hmm. on your own. But I think it's important to know what you're paying and know what you're getting for what you pay. There are a lot of people that think they buy investment funds or they have a retirement account and they believe that their investments are free. And that's not Mm. the case. None of these investment companies are working for free. So you probably just don't know where to look and don't know how much you're paying. So I think something that's very beneficial about hiring a private fiduciary, it's very transparent. You know upfront what you're paying and what you're getting for that. And there aren't the conflicts of interest or the hidden fees that so many average investors get stuck paying. Yeah, that's that's a good segue into you know the next topic, which is how the fiduciary industry is structured, right? How it's the different types of players that you have in this industry. And I know you have a lot to say on this. So we could start with maybe the nomenclature. Like you have all these different names for like, okay, I'm a certified fiduciary. I'm a certified financial planner, financial advisor. You know, I'm a this and that and whatnot. From your perspective, how do you categorize the people who give you financial advice? From my perspective, it's either certified fiduciaries or not certified fiduciaries. And almost Mm. nothing else matters. 
And unfortunately, that's only like that's 4% versus 96%. So most of the professionals out there are not certified fiduciaries. It doesn't matter what, what everyone calls themselves, a financial planner, a financial advisor, investment advisor. To me, that's just a bunch of jargon. It's confusing. No one even knows what it means. Mm-hmm. So really, it's like, what are the licenses and certifications? Where do they work? Do they have independence or are they considered a captive agent, a captive salesperson for an insurance company or for a financial firm or for a broker dealer? Mm-hmm. If so, they're not a fiduciary. And that's fine. You just need to be aware of that because there are going to be conflicts of interest. There are going to be commissions. There are going to be proprietary products and investments that their company wants to push out to the public. And they have stuff on the, they have their own inventory on the shelves that they need to sell. And so for me, I would prefer to, to work with independent, transparent advisors in every area of my life. I don't want someone giving me conflicted advice where they've got incentives to say, you should do this instead of that. Yeah. Like I want someone just telling me the straight truth every time, pros and cons, upside, downside of every piece of advice they give me. And that's what a fiduciary is legally required to do at all times. Mm, mm. Yeah, I think for those you know not familiar, what Chad really means is a lot of people who call themselves uh, fiduciaries are like dietitians working at a butcher shop, you know, where they have a vested interest in selling you as much meat as possible under the disguise of a dietitian, you know, nutritionist advisor or something like that, right. where there's clearly a conflict of interest. Right. You can't see a dietitian who is interested in selling you red meat every single day of your life. Right. So you said it's 96 percent of people who are not fiduciaries. Right. And I've even heard some numbers saying only two percent are actual fiduciaries. Right. I can say with confidence it's less than five percent. So I know Mm -hmm. that much. And most financial advisors or financial professionals who enter the industry are entering being hired by a large bank, a broker dealer or a life insurance company, and therefore they're joining that 96%. It's easier to make a quick dollar when you're not a fiduciary. Mm -hmm. That's just the straight truth. I mean, it's not easy to build up a business as a fiduciary that pays the bills. You have to really be successful to get to that point, or you have to really take a stance and say, this is the way I want to go from the very beginning. So it's a lot easier to just sign up under a big firm and have commissions and try to make money quicker like that in our industry. Unfortunately, that's just the way it is. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting point. And I want to dive a little deeper into that. So let me ask you, as a fiduciary, right, you said there's a certain way that you charge clients and it usually depends on how much money you manage for them, right? Yes. So there's a certain percentage involved and we can talk about what those percentages are and how they vary. So is that the only way that you make money? Is that the only source of revenue? the main source of revenue as a fiduciary and what does it take to scale that up to a comfortable living income? Well, the only source of revenue for for a fiduciary is whatever the clients are paying them. Okay. So a a fiduciary is not getting paid from investment companies and that's the big difference. So as as an an advisor, broker, agent, rep, rep, advisor, Mm -hmm. those people can get paid from the investment companies. So... Mm -hmm. The investment funds could pay them a commission for life just for holding those investment funds, which is going to make the performance and the return much lower for the client because you have really high fees 
internally that are mm. coming out of the fund every single year. Yeah. A fiduciary only gets paid from the client directly. There's no other sources of income for investment advice and financial transactions. So for us, the two sources of revenue are financial planning. If someone pays us, hires Pacific Capital and does a very comprehensive financial plan for their family, they can pay us for that. Or it's the investment management, which is ongoing full-time services managing the investment accounts for the client. So mm -hmm. first, every client comes to us, they go through the process that we created called the financial life inspection. Okay. Financial life inspection is proprietary. It's trademarked. It was written about in the Wall Street Journal many years ago. So I, I know it's proprietary because I built it myself. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> it's a very comprehensive and objective list of 100 checkpoints mm -hmm. that we go through for a family or for a business owner or an executive. Mm -hmm. And just spot check and give them a green, a yellow, or a red score on every checkpoint. Okay. And so that's the first entry point for a new client for Pacific Capital. Mm -hmm. It's through the financial life inspection. You cannot come to our firm and say, I have this much money and I want you to invest it for me. I really want to make better growth. Mm -hmm. We're going to go and say, well, first we need to do a financial life inspection, which is a very, just our comprehensive plan first. Yeah. So for us as a fiduciary, it's planning first and investment strategy second. And that's critical. That's where you just ask for, get paid for advice or is that free? No, that's, a, that's paid. That's okay. paid. So there, there's three levels. One of them is 6,300 a year. Mm -hmm. One of them is 8,100 a year. And one of them is 11,700 a year, depending mm -hmm. on complexity. If we're looking at all yeah. kinds of business entities and tax planning for the businesses and you know the, just depending on complexity so there are three levels yeah they pay before we do all the work we just have our goals conversation first yeah and so once they become a client and pay for that and sign up then we get through the life inspection all their financial situation and then we will give them recommendations and we will help them for a full year because of that arrangement mm. and they can decide if they want to have us also manage the investments. And for that, there's a separate cost, obviously, a separate service. Mm -hmm. But on average, clients may pay around 1% total for us to manage our investments. It's pretty, pretty standard. And you said that that percentage varies for, you know, depending on how much money? Correct. Yeah. So how much does it vary? So if a client has, um, say, 30 or 40 million, it's going to be closer to 0.75% per year. Mm -hmm. If a client just has a few million, it might be 1.25%. So mm -hmm. the range is probably 0.75 to 1.25% per year. I see. And that's the standard in general for your industry. Correct. Yeah. That's not unique. I see. So if somebody has, let's say, let's take the top end, right? So you're charging 1.25% per year for managing let's say let's throw out a number like how much how many millions like two million sure yeah two million dollars right yep. yep and i'm bad at math how much is that in terms of annual revenue is like twenty five thousand. yeah twenty five thousand dollars for that one client right correct each year that's recurring revenue to make it comfortable okay you get four or five such clients you're making 100k and then if you go up to 20 30 40 clients like how much can you scale a fiduciary services and investment management service like without hiring more people? 
and without driving yourself crazy? Like what's a realistic, comfortable number of clients? Really depends on the advisor and the neediness of the clients, how much attention they need. You know, I have over 10 employees mm-hmm. and I have a great team of experts. So I'm not, I'm, I haven't been doing this by myself for a very, very, very long time. But, you know, it's a good question. Some people might only, some fiduciaries might say, I only want to have, I only want to manage 10 million or 20 million. And that's plenty for me and I can do it by myself. Mm. But that's, I think that's short-sighted. I think most of us are interested in growth and being able to influence and impact and serve a lot more people than that. So mm-hmm. so by default, it's a services company, right? Naturally, Absolutely. It's a professional services company, yeah. Yeah, and as an individual, let's say you make you manage 10 million for a bunch of clients and a 1.25% return on that. Yeah, you make a few hundred thousand dollars a year and you can live a comfortable you know, life. But to scale it up, you have to hire more people. So let's talk about the one person who has their own private practice, right? They're like, let's say they're making 250K a year, right? By through fiduciary advice, right? For the 96% of people who are not real fiduciaries, who are also brokers, how much can they, like just by selling you whatever they want to sell you, how much can they grow their income? So I'm trying to get into like how much of an incentive there is for, I mean, because 96% of fiduciaries are going in one direction for a reason, right? And it's got to be, I assume it's a pretty big reason. It's not like they make 255 instead of 250, right? Like how yeah. big of an incentive is there for a fiduciary to actually be a broker as well? I would try to just frame it like this. I mm-hmm. think the cost for a client to hire us for a full year mm-hmm. typically is just, let's just say an average of 1%. For all the services. Okay. Yeah, sure. And a, a non like a non-fiduciary client who is working with a broker agent who is doing commission-based business. Yeah. Some of their investment trades will cost them four percent, five percent, even eight or nine percent. And so just think about it. If someone has a million dollars and they, they paid a commission of five percent, wow. that's like five years worth of services for working with a fiduciary. And so the commissions can be extremely high for people who are not fiduciaries. Wow. It's like multiples of revenue in yes. that they would make in the short term yep. by not being a fiduciary. So this is a pretty strong incentive for even for you to, you know, or anybody, any fiduciary to actually switch sides and be part of the 96, 98%. How often do you get approached by people who want you to sell stuff for them? I don't because it, we're not even allowed to. So I, as a fiduciary, like that's not even an, an option. I can't even make a commission from a client for their investments. So it's been over 10 and a half years mm-hmm. since I even had a company solicit me for things like that. Wow. So you said it's not allowed for you. So it's impossible. Yeah. So that's because you're a certified fiduciary? Yes. And how do they keep tabs on you know what you're doing and what you're not doing? Who's they? Like the investment companies? I mean, you said you're not allowed to, right? So I'm, I'm curious, like, how that, how that works. Yeah. So it's not that uh, I don't have the arrangement for those investment companies to even pay me. So like, I'm not even in the building where that business goes on. And so I'm not on their radar. So it's like if all those people are at the beach and they could get sunburned, I'm not even at the beach. So there's I'm not even on their radar at all. I'm not there. So mm. I don't have an opportunity for these investment companies to even pay me or solicit me because I don't work for a big company that has that arrangement at all. 
Uh, I see. So I'm a private business owner out on my own. So mm. I don't, I don't work for a big company that's constantly being solicited by those investment companies that's saying, Hey, here's how much commission we're paying out this month to your sales reps. So because I'm just a private business owner out on my own as a fiduciary, I don't even, I'm not there. I'm not on their radar at all. Okay. So you're saying that if you're a private fiduciary, financial planner, advisor, whatever, then you're probably illegit. Yeah. I mean, it's, I don't know if you're good at what you do, but you're, yeah. you definitely at least, you stripped out the conflicts of interest. You stripped out the commissions. Yeah. So there's a good chance if you worked with a fiduciary, you talked to a financial fiduciary who has a flat rate, it's upfront. Mm -hmm. They've got certifications, they have experience, they have reviews online that you can actually go look at. Mm -hmm. I think all that's extremely important. But yes, if you talk to someone like that, you pay them for advice, you know that you're going to get their best and honest feedback because they don't have financial incentives to steer you astray. Mm, I see. So what happens? I mean, and you worked at, I think, Merrill Lynch. Was that Merrill Lynch or Bank of yes. America? It was Merrill Lynch. And then in 2008, it was it turned into Bank of America owning Merrill Lynch. But yes. Mm -hmm. Give us the scoop on. So what are you talking about when you say the stuff that happened in the buildings that are being solicited yeah. by all these companies? Like, give us the oh, inside yeah. story. Yeah. <laughs> we had, well, I mean, we would have mandatory meetings every day where there would be the local manager at Merrill Lynch. And then the sponsor for the lunch or the breakfast would be an investment fund company mm -hmm. who was really promoting their investment funds. And then also we're promoting incentives. And it's like, if, if you could get to this many sales within this amount of time, then here's the kind of bonuses, or here's a trip that you could get invited on, or mm -hmm. here are the perks, or we're going to do this big golf trip as long as you can sell enough of this before the end of the month. And then Merrill Lynch Bank of America would say, we need all of your clients to get into a Bank of America mortgage, or mm. we need your, your clients to sign up for a Bank of America credit card. And it was like, well, my clients don't want a credit card. They have no interest in this. And it was like, well, we need everyone to sign up. This is not an option. We need to really push it out there. Or we need to switch the money market fund because there's a money market fund that Merrill Lynch Bank of America will make more revenue on if we switch people. So, and I would always ask, well, wait a second. Why would I switch them? Is the client going to get a better interest rate? Mm. And they say, no, either it was going to be the same or it would be slightly worse. I'd say, well, then I'm not switching any clients' money market funds over to this proprietary Bank of America money market fund. Mm. And it was always just that constant push of where I felt like I was fighting against my own employer to mm. do what was right for the client. You know, and these clients are relationship based. These are my friends, my family, my longtime people who've trusted me. And it was like, I'm not going to put them in a worse financial situation, a worse product, just so my employer becomes happy with me or gives me bonuses or things like that. So that's why eventually I just left. I said, I'm not going to, this is not what I signed up for. This is not where I want to spend my career. So, mm. you know, that's the main reason I left too much of that stuff. Wow. And since you're talking like, you know, the revenues are in multiples, when you do use a broker, so you were employed by Bank of America. You were an employee of theirs. and Of Merrill Lynch, yeah. Yep. And then Bank of America. Yep. Yeah. And you were soliciting customers in a way, like, you know, people that you provide the services to. Yep. And they were from your personal networks or like, how does that work? How do you do marketing as a financial advisor, but a, an employee of Bank of America? Yeah, it's, it's the same as any company. You're soliciting 
business wherever you can. Mm -hmm. So it's your network, it's people you meet, it's friends and successful neighbors, it's anywhere you can go, seminars, marketing. So back then it was very much trying to build a business. You know, I started mm -hmm. almost 20 years ago. In the last five to seven years, our business has been completely referral-based, incoming leads where we're filtering out who's a good fit and who's not a good fit because we yeah. built up a reputation. But it was very different in the beginning, obviously. I see. So you were soliciting clients to pay you for advice. Yes. And the company was saying, oh, you can't just get paid for advice. You have to get paid for broke for selling them our stuff too. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, they, they were always looking for opportunities to increase company revenue, which is typical mm -hmm. of a business, but it was often at the expense or often at the expense of the best interest of the client, which is what bothered me. Interesting. And did any people ever get sacked or was this all always more of a, like, what's the legal stuff? And what I mean is... It's completely legal. It's, it's called suitability versus fiduciary. So suitable, you could, you just have to be able to make a case that the investment advice could be considered suitable. Mm. Fiduciary is best interest. So if I have two investment fund options, suitability, I could say, well, both of these investment funds are in technology stocks, and I believe they're both suitable. They both could go up if the technology markets go up. Yeah. And I think either one of them is a good case for the client. Mm -hmm. Now, best interest would say, well, one of them, one of these technology funds is three and a half times more expensive than the other. Mm -hmm. And they both pretty much do the same thing. So as mm -hmm. a fiduciary, I'm saying, let's go with the less expensive one and save the client money. That's best okay. interest. Suitable just says I can pick either one because they're both considered suitable. It's a much lower bar of standards. And so as a broker, you're only held to the suitability standard, not the fiduciary standard. And therefore, these companies can get away with doing much more expensive things because it benefits them and just say, look, it's still suitable. It's not, it's not like we mm. try to lose the money. We just did this option and we can justify it. Fiduciary says, absolutely not. That's not the best choice for the client. And if I was in their shoes or if this was my mom or my grandma, I'm going to go with the less expensive option. So there's just a huge difference in the standards required from certified fiduciaries versus those who are working for a brokerage. Mm, I see. So this is interesting. You can actually recommend investments, certain investments to a client. You can strongly recommend certain investments to a client as a fiduciary, as long as you're not you know, officially or unofficially getting paid for recommending that investment either way, right? Yes. As a, as a fiduciary, we are going to look out for the client's best interest every time. Mm. There's no reason not to because that's our compensation is unaffected by their investment decisions. I see. So we do not get paid differently based on what it goes inside of a client's account. Mm. So if we get paid a flat rate, let's say it's 1%, of $5 million. Mm -hmm. If their account grows to 6 million, now we're getting paid 1% of a higher number. So I'm very happy and they're very happy. If the 5 million goes down to 4 million, we get a pay cut and mm -hmm. we're not happy and they're not happy. So our incentives are together. We want the investments to grow over the long term because then we're also going to grow with them. A broker might do a transaction on a $5 million account and get paid tomorrow a big multiple 
and frankly, then may not care as much if it goes up or down because they already got a big payday. Mm. So it's it's a very different arrangement. Yeah. And to compare this with the fee structure of, let's say, a hedge fund, right, where you give them money to invest and they invest your money and they get paid a certain percentage of the profit or the return on the uh-huh. investment, right? But here you get a percentage of the principal that's managed. Correct, correct. It's not like a hedge fund where you're giving up 2% of fees up front plus a 20% of the profit. That's a different arrangement. Mm. So this is kind of more in line with a, you know, with the end. So, and this fee structure, I assume there are people who also say like, you know what, I'm only going to charge you for the profit, but I'm going to take a bigger chunk of the profit because I'm confident in my skills. Or is that like... Not really. Is that not a good combination for the client? No, that doesn't really happen in our industry. That's more in the private equity hedge fund space. Mm. We're not really technically supposed to take a a portion of profits. That's just not how it works. Mm. Is there like a more specific reason for that? I mean, I'm just throwing stuff out. Yeah, I'm not sure. I just, I don't think that that's... I don't know all the legal reasons behind that. I just mm-hmm. know that it could be perhaps the assumption that when our motives are to just increase the profits because we get paid more to a, a greater extent, then perhaps the risk is also increased mm-hmm. to a very high level, yeah. putting the client's money at jeopardy. But I'm not sure. I don't know the you know the deep legal reasons behind the different structures in the industry. Makes sense. Makes sense. Okay. So now let's shift gears a little bit and talk about actually your process, like your craft as a fiduciary. And we touched on this in terms of the financial life inspection. But for those of us who are obviously not aware, when you have a new client come in, what goes on in your head? What is the, all the science, the rocket science that's happening? What process do you follow for yourself, which probably you've perfected or polished over the years? How do you go about it from your end? So when a new client comes in, really, we're looking for not just someone who has financial resources, not someone who just someone who has like a high income or high amount of assets to manage. Mm -hmm. We also want to look for the mindset. We want to look for someone who is goal focused, someone who can delegate, who doesn't want to completely control every financial and investment decision within their portfolio, because otherwise they don't need to hire us. Mm -hmm. You know, the people who hire us really have to build some trust. And so in the beginning, it takes some relationship and trust building, which happens through the financial life inspection process. It's really Mm -hmm. part of that goals conversation, the strategy conversation, digging deep into what concerns them, what they're worried about, what big changes or obstacles do they see in the next five, 10 years for their family. Mm -hmm. It's all of that. And as we're looking for relationships to accept and referrals to accept, that's really the focus is who are these people? What type of relationship could we have? Is there trust building? Do we see it as a great opportunity to build a partnership? And then it's just how do we best structure their financial life to feed the goals that they've told us and to essentially appease the concerns that they're worried about and obstacles that they might see that they face, whether it's in their business career or in their family life down the road. Mm -hmm. So give us some examples, like, and of course, it's very complicated and, you know, there's a lot of moving parts. So let's say, what was the toughest client in terms of their finances that you ever had to manage? And what were the North Star? Like, I mean, you're always, as a fiduciary, I assume from a craft standpoint, you're always guided by certain North Stars when you're looking at a mess, right? Yeah. So I'm, I'm interested in talking about the process of how you go about it. Like, how do you find your way? through a mess, a financial mess, 
And what do you look for? What signs do you look for? What questions do you answer at a high level for yourself? Can you go into a little bit of that? So the, one of the first questions we ask a new potential client at Pacific Capital is we ask them if we were having this conversation three years from today, mm. looking back together, what would need to have happened both personally and financially for you to feel happy with your progress? Mm. And that's going to help them clarify as they look three years ahead, which we found is a good starting number because it's hard to picture life 20 years ahead, but three years ahead is manageable. And they can think about what progress they want to make in that time. So it could be a lot of times we'll say it'll be real estate. Like I want to invest in some real estate or I want to buy a house in this particular spot, or I'd like to sell my business in the next few years and really kind of change what I do every day Mm. or I've got a family situation that's going to require a lot of money and I know that I need to prepare for that. So Mm. we're trying to drill down on what's most important to them and help them simplify and clarify the top five to 10 specific goals that they have in their life. If someone has no goals and no one to take care of, and it's very difficult to do planning. And so we really need to hone in on what's important to them, what matters to them, what's happening in their lives. What big decisions do they need to make in the near term and the long term? Mm -hmm. And then we're going to basically clarify each piece of their financial life and give it purpose and meaning and figure out, okay, you have, you say you want to be debt free. You don't want any loans by this certain time in your life. Well, let's look at the highest interest loans that you have. Let's look at the most tax efficient way to pay those loans down. You're talking Mm -hmm. about selling this business and relocating to another part of the world. Well, let's look at how much do you think you could actually get for that business? How could we manage that sale for you in a very tax efficient way so that you keep more of the money that you're going to receive? And then where does that money go? You know, do Mm -hmm. you have college and university expenses for kids or grandkids that you want to support? Do you have real estate decisions to make? So essentially, we're the first call on any financial decision for our clients at Pacific Capital. Mm -hmm. When they have a big decision, when they have a, a concern or something pops up, they're going to call us first. Yeah. So I just had someone uh, reach out yesterday and they have a business, a small business. They have a business partner and they were approached by a buyer. And he said, I wasn't planning on selling my business for at least 10 years, but now they're offering over 10 multiple of my revenue and I can't say no. Mm-hmm. Can you please look at my business books and my tax returns and give me advice on how much should I really sell it for? what I could live off of and spend if I do sell the business and retire. And then also take a look at my debts and see what would be paid down first. What would I continue to hold as a loan and just pay off over time? So these are all the decisions that he's got to make. And he just reached out to us this week because he said, this is a, this is a brand new opportunity that wasn't here before, but because we have that trust and that relationship, he's very excited to hear what we have to say. Mm, Interesting. You know, that was a great summary to pull a parallel with something that I'm familiar with. And I'm going to bring up Dave Ramsey. I don't know how you feel about him, but I'm just going to bring, because he has this debt snowball baby step framework that I'm going to give a quick overview to anybody who's not aware. Basically, the Dave Ramsey is you know a different personality. His framework is, number one, get an emergency fund. Number two, get out of debt as quickly as possible. And number three is, I think, save up for your mortgage or pay off your mortgage. And then number four is invest for the long term, right? I think those are his four or five baby steps to start with. Is that similar to your process, what you just described in terms of, you know, the big transactions and and stuff? Like how much does that vary? 
from your approach to the sequencing of what you make people do? Our approach is extremely personalized and customized. Mm. And I think that's the biggest difference is I don't have a one size fits all answer. Mm. And for, for one person, it might be, you really need to pay off these loans right away. And for another person, it might be, you know what, these loans are really cheap and you need to put your resources and money elsewhere because you've got buckets that need to be filled up for these other goals that you can't rush to pay down that loan as quickly as you might have wanted to without Mm -hmm. compromising these other goals that you've got for your family. So I think the biggest difference is we don't have one size fits all answers for anybody. Mm. Each client is going to work with our fiduciary team and get investment and financial advice on a case-by-case basis. And it's not going to be the same as the next person who walks in the door. Mm, I see what you mean. Yeah, that obviously makes sense. It's always different depending on the circumstances and the goals that each person has. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I was just wondering if you have like, you know, your own way of doing certain things. Like, for example, he has he definitely has a way and he preaches that way all the way to the moon, right? Yes. So I was just curious if you also have your own twist on certain things Three that you never advise or whatever. Yeah. No, I don't. I'm very careful not to make hard stance statements on anything. Mm. So when it comes to debt or when it comes to insurance or when it comes to investments, I'm not going to take an extreme position on one side or the other because I think there's merit to a lot of different options depending on the situation. Mm. And so we will look at a client's goals first, and then we will do the financial life inspection, and then we will give them recommendations. Until that stuff is completed, until that process is really matured, then I don't have specific advice for somebody. It's like a doctor. If you go into a doctor and you say, what's your advice on you know, what I should do with my health? Yeah. They really need to go through a health diagnosis first. Mm. They need to understand what's in your body. Because the way you react to a medicine might be very different than the patient who came in yesterday. Yeah. And so I feel that's the same way. I can't say this medicine, these pills are magical pills and they work for everybody. You know, I could say that healthy eating and exercise is going to help anyone. Mm. I can say that. So I'm going to say lower debt and higher investment savings is going to help anyone. But I don't have a hard stance as far as what to prescribe people until I've really gone through the health inspection. Mm, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Of course, exercise is good for you, but not if you have a, you know, multiple leg fracture or something like that, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, makes sense. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Chad, for being on the show. And I want to endorse your book. It's called Smart Not Spoiled, your latest book. And you also have another book called yes. Stress-Free Money. That's correct. To the listeners, I must say, I have read the book Smart Not Spoiled. It's about how to raise kids who are financially savvy and responsible with money and educated and aware about how they're spending their money and how they're making money. I've read the book cover to cover and I personally endorse it. But but tell us a little more. How What made you write that book and what's your plan with that book? So Smart Not Spoiled, it's really become something that's that's been widely accepted because I think people feel the need to teach kids about money. Mm-hmm. It's something that's not, it's not well taught in the school systems. Yeah. And frankly, parents don't know where to turn. And so I wrote this book with the seven money skills to really teach kids and help parents teach kids about how to be savvy, like you said, and how to appreciate money and how to learn to be valuable and learn to learn to earn money, learn to manage money. And so I think it's extremely important. It's a topic that we couldn't overemphasize. You know, every family I've spoken with has said, I'm so excited to read this book and start talking to my kids about money. 
The real goal is to make money a comfortable family conversation topic, mm. which most of the time it is not. It's a taboo topic that we don't really talk about. So that's the whole purpose for writing that book. Yeah. Well, Chad, thank you so much. I appreciate it. You know, it actually resonated a lot with me because I had to teach myself a lot of the money skills Absolutely. that were mentioned in that book because my parents were like, you know what? We'll take care of you. Don't worry about money. <laughs> right, right. It is a good thing for a parent to say, but it's not very helpful or educational <laughs> to a kid who wants to you know, grow up and be their own person, right? For sure, for sure. Well, thank you so much and best of luck with your book and with your business. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.